Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so part of how we do that is on Sunday mornings as we get together and gather, we like to, to, to preach and teach from God's Word. And so we're continuing a series today that we began a few weeks ago in the book of 1 John called Abide, Life in Christ, Life with Christ. And so hopefully on your way in, if you don't have one, you grabbed one of our discipleship guides. We're going to be in week four, Abiding in Maturity. Uh, we also have these scripture journals, which is uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Just an opportunity for you to take notes. You want to get God's Word in your hand. And so to, to kind of recap for you, this is the, the, the book of 1 John. It is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to uh, a church. He's, John's kind of towards the tail end of his life. Um, he's helped plant a lot of different churches. And, and one in particular in Ephesus is one that he had a lot of care for, a lot of concern for. And as he's beginning to kind of finish out his race, he has some concern with, with what's going on uh, with the church church that he helped plant. And so uh, he knows that there, there's been a, a lot of things that have come in to the church theologically, practically, and functionally that, that are just not aligned with what it means to have life in Christ and life with Christ. And, and so he uses this word abide uh, like, like over and over throughout um, this, uh, this letter. And, and this word means to not depart, to be held and kept continually, to endure, to not perish, to remain as one, and to survive, and, and really to live. And he uses that word abide to say, this is what it means to answer the question of what does it mean to be a Christian? That a Christian is someone who abides in Christ, is held continually by Christ, endures in and with Christ, uh, who does not perish and has life because of Christ. And so um, there was a lot of people in the church that like kind of maybe thought they were Christians or thought that they were good moral people or thought that they were strong spiritually, uh, and, and, and yet they were starting to believe things that, that were no longer accurate, that weren't true about Jesus being the Son of God, that weren't true about um, our sin and, and our need to be reconciled to God. Uh, the, the truth is really what we'd call the gospel. And so over the last couple weeks, we saw that a hey, part of life in and with Christ um, is a life that is characterized by obedience to Jesus. That if you're going to say, hey, I'm a Christian, John just simply says, you, you can't say you abide in Christ or you're with Christ if you never follow or carry out or live by any of his commandments to love God and to love people. And so I want to be clear about this, though. The Christian life is one that's characterized by obedience to Jesus, but it's not one that life comes from obedience to Jesus. If you can make that distinction in your head, it's helpful. Because right, right, one is saying, hey, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and live a life of obedience because of what Christ has done for me. The other is, I'm going to earn my life with Christ through my obedience. The first one's the gospel, the second one's religion. One leads to life, the other is lifelessness. And so as he's building on and expanding on this idea of obedience and identity in Christ, uh, and, and he talks a little bit about dark and light spirituality uh, and, and, and everything, he really wants people to, to honestly reflect. And you should want to honestly reflect about your individual spiritual condition. 
Like, how'd you come in today? What does the last season of your life look like? Not just your mental health, not just your finances, just not just your relational health. How is your soul? And he's saying, hey, be honest with yourself. Be honest with others. Be honest with God. Not to the point of humiliation and a fallen to despair, but to a place of humility where you realize, hey, no, I need to be dependent on the work of Jesus Christ in my place. Like, I'm not good enough to, to save myself. I'm not good enough to endure or abide in, in me. And so humility is a direct path that moves towards greater maturity. And so, like, I began this sermon, I began almost every sermon with uh, some version of saved by Jesus' work, changed by Jesus' grace, living on Jesus' mission. And that's because we believe that, that being saved by Jesus, having life with Jesus, is a life that's going to include some spiritual growth. It's going to be growing in maturity. The maturity is something that we should actually desire to have. We should want to grow in maturity. I mean, I know uh, even in this room, uh, and certainly in our church, like, like 40% of our church is under the age of 18. Uh, in this room, I know there's a lot of parents and young parents, and actually most of the youngest parents, they're probably out in the cry room or, or whatever, right, because they got little kids. Like, when you've got a newborn, and, and they just like, they smile, and, and they cry, and they want to be fed, and, 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 and then it's like they need their diaper changed. You're like, well, okay, this is, a, this is a normal type of life. For me and Tara, that time of life lasted about eight years because we had six kids in eight years. So we just changed diapers for 80% of a decade. It was fantastic. And I say that, that was fine then. But my youngest is eight. Our oldest are 16. If any of them needed diapers changed now, we'd say, well, you're not living into the life that God has for you. You haven't grown in maturity. And so as Christians, we don't want to be, you know, ones who keep soiling themselves. Like, like we're called to actually grow. Like, 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 it's okay to be an infant in Christ. But God loves us enough to not want us or even allow us to stay in that place. And so today what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to abide in maturity? How, how does God foster maturity in us? Um, and and, and how, how can we grow in maturity? And I will just say this. You will only grow in maturity as much as you are abiding in Christ. And so that leads us to our verses today. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 12 through 17. We're going to start with verses 12 and 14. 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 through 14 says this. I'm writing you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So this first section as we look at maturity, the, 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 to, to grow in maturity uh, in Christ means that we're going to have to abide in our identity as children of God. And so John, you know, he's, you look at the previous verses, I mean, he said like, you know, if you're doing this, if you're doing that, um, then the truth is not in you and you're a liar. Like John's, John said some pretty rough stuff. 
And he wants to soften hearts in that. But John's also a pastor who, who absolutely cares for his people. And so what John's doing here is, is he's not letting off the gas. Excuse me, he's not hitting the brakes on just like practical teaching, what's true about Jesus. But he's letting off the gas a little bit because, because while we should live or, or enjoy and experience some times of self-reflection that lead us to greater growth, we don't need to, to live and dwell constantly on, on where am I with Christ? How's my relationship with the Lord? Like, 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 like am I in? Am I out? And the reason I say that is because last week we talked quite a bit about like what does it look like to be on the team, right? We use the analogy, you know, kind of like being on a football team, right? Like, like you're either on the team. And, and like that's a perfectly fine analogy to be able to say, hey, you know, you know am, I, am I following out the commands of the coach? Am I, am, I, am I doing what I'm called to do? It's a fine analogy except it breaks down in, in this key way. When you're on a team, you are only as good as your performance, Right? Right? Like you know you belong on the team because you're performing. Because you're, you're doing something that's helping the team. And maybe you're here and, and you're, you're serving and you're giving and all this stuff. Like, that's fantastic. Keep, keep doing that. But, but, but know that your identity in Christ isn't determinate on how well you're performing as a Christian. Because if, if you're on a team and it's only based on your performance, then, then what happens when your performance dips? Right? Like, come on, LeBron should have quit a long time ago, right? No one's watching the NBA playoffs. That's great. The Sonics left like a decade ago. I know we're still sad. We'll get over it, okay? Like, at a certain point, if you're not cutting it on the team, you get cut. And, and I think as Christians, we sometimes wrestle with believing that's our identity. Like, I'm going to be an okay Christian as long as I'm performing well. But if I, if I don't, I get cut. And what John's saying here is no, your identity in Christ, like, yeah, you might participate like you're on a team, but your identity in Christ it isn't one of being on a team, it's being a member of a family. See, when you're on a team, you're defined by your position. When you're in a family, you have an identity. I'm part of this family. And so he uses family language because he knows the bond is greater and in a healthy family, you have the ability, in fact, you should be called towards growth and greater responsibility and greater maturity. And so, as Christians, we're not just to see ourselves as members of the team, we're to see ourselves as sons and daughters of the king. And so one of the ways that we can abide in maturity is maturity is knowing where our son and daughtership come from. So we're saying, hey, I'm part of the family of God. It's because you're saying first that I believe in Jesus Christ's work in my place, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that, that, that Jesus has lived the perfect life for us, that the Father has said, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. We find our identity abiding in Jesus Christ so that when God looks at us, even in our sin, even in our brokenness, God sees Jesus in our place. That that's actually what we believe is actually good news about the gospel. That when you're in Christ, when you're abiding in Christ, when your identity is in Christ, that God sees Jesus in your place, and that's a good thing. So you should have some assurance. See, Paul, um, another apostle, tells Timothy, a younger pastor, that, that while you should be assured in your identity, it's okay to make your progress evident to all. So it's okay to ask yourself, am I growing? Or a better way of, is asking others, where have you seen growth in me? 
that needs to be encouraged? Where are areas of growth that I need to keep growing in? And so when John opens this section, he says this phrase, little children. And I want us to think about that in two regards. One is, um, you know, throughout 1 John, he uses the term little children. He says, you know, I want you to be kept from idols. Little children, I don't want you to sin. And so sometimes little children is a blanket expression for just anyone who's in Christ. So it's really seeing ourselves no matter where you are in maturity or where you are in your spiritual journey or whatever else, that first and foremost, you are a child of God in Jesus Christ. And whether you're 8 or 18 or 80, you're always going to be a child of God the Father. But he's also talking specifically about you know, those who are, who are new in Christ. So there's some things that we, we never move on from, no matter how... how uh, long you're a Christian, but in this case, he's talking about what does it mean, you know, to, to be new in Christ? He's talking about little children. He's saying, hey, you little children, those of you that are new in the faith, hey, you got baptized at Easter. Hey, you know, you got baptized just a couple years ago. Hey, this is, this seems still new. Like, like sometimes it maybe even feels like the cement's not dry on everything yet. Like, like, wow, I, I feel like uh, I, I'm walking uh, in this, this direction with Jesus. My, my life, I'm experiencing some growth. I'm experiencing some change, but man, I don't have a long history to know like how well this endures so it just feels a little unsettling and so while he's been talking about hey you know if you're not obeying Christ you're a liar the spirit's not in you all these things he just goes hey by the way little children I want you to be able to exhale I want you to be able to abide in knowing the simple truth that your sins are forgiven and you're like, well, why is that a, a, I mean, a big deal? Like, why is that? How does that help lead to maturity? Well, if you're abiding in Christ, you're going to grow in maturity as you are reminded that your sins are forgiven. Because it's going to lead you to a place of being reminded that you had sin that needs to be forgiven. That you do sin that needs to be forgiven. That you will sin that needs Forgiveness. And so even just being reminded that your sins are forgiven resets you and resets us to a place of humility, a place of dependency. That sin is actually serious. That sin separates you from a holy and just God. Like you, you can't savor this if you don't know you need it. That God takes sin very seriously. Sin leads to death. Sin kills our joy. It kills relationships. It ultimately kills your connection with the source of life. And that will lead to death. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. That without Christ and his work on the cross for you, your eternity is in destruction, is in torment. None of that's good news. None of that sounds exciting. And so, so John's saying, hey, little children, while you're worried about your eternity, exhale. Your sins are forgiven. If your relationship is in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Every person needs to know this. No matter who you are or what your background or how you came in today, you need to know that sin has separated you from God and the only hope now for life and certainly for eternity is to trust Jesus as your Savior, follow Him as your King, and, and abide, rest, endure, be held continually with your new identity in Him. And so for 
the little children, if you will, for the, those that are young in the faith. He's saying stay in humility because all of us have experienced sin. All of us will sin. And, and yet, I think what can happen when you're younger in your faith is, is, is sin becomes this debilitating thing where you're like, man, I, I'm so worried because before I was a Christian, I knew I was walking in sin. Now I'm a Christian and like I'm aware of my sin. Oh shoot, I'm actually doing some things that are sinful. Like, what's my eternal state? And, and we get fearful. See, every Christian knows that God takes sin seriously because Jesus had to die on the cross for it so that God could be just. But, and John said earlier, he said, hey, I wrote this to you so that you don't sin. But here he says in verse 12, I'm writing you because your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you've taken English, okay? But, but um, and, and dang it, I'm going to get the terms wrong now. Forgiven is present tense. That's what it is. That means you are forgiven right now, not past tense. Like, well, we only forgave this stuff up until you got baptized. Hope you haven't sinned in the last couple weeks because <laughs> you might not be in. No, no, you are forgiven. That is an identity you have now. It, it, is, it is present tense, which means it's an identity that carries with you throughout time. So you can mature in Christ and rest and exhale when you know your status your identity when it comes to your sin. Yes, you are guilty of sin, but because of Christ's work in your place, you are forgiven of your sin. So you don't have to live in a place of fear. You don't have to be like, well, I'm just, I'm working for my forgiveness. Or I'm, or I'm hoping if I get to the end, I'm going to find out that, I, that I'm going to get forgiven. He's saying, little children, new believers, know you're forgiven. We are forgiven, all of us. And this, is, this carries on, again, no matter where you're at in your life and walk with Jesus. That it should encourage and empower us to walk in obedience now and moving forward towards greater maturity. So when you're evaluating your position before God, if your faith is in Christ, you can simply say, I, I, am, I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm imperfect, and I am forgiven. And you can breathe. When you have assurance that God forgives sin and has forgiven and will forgive, sin loses its power a bit. So one of the ways we can mature in Christ is being reminded that we're forgiven. Another way that we can mature in Christ is being reminded who the hero is. So he says, you are forgiven. In verse 12, you are forgiven for his namesake. That the reason that we're forgiven uh, is actually that God would be glorified. That Jesus would be made much of. If you are a, a sinner who's been forgiven, then, then you know that the hero of your story is someone else. That I hate to say it this way, we're usually the villains of our story. We like to think usually we're the victims of our story. And that can be true. We can be victimized. But often... We are also victims of ourselves. We've harmed ourselves because of sin. And so now, if we remember that Jesus is our hero, that Jesus is our sacrifice, that Jesus is our resurrection, that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus is our king, so that now our sins are forgiven, there's a constant reason for us to be reminded that Jesus is the hero. See, 
if someone has sinned against someone, and all of us have sinned against a holy and perfect God, the one who forgives that sin is the hero of the story. Oh, this person gets mercy and grace, and that is fantastic. And that should cause all of us to have great joy and great assurance. But this is the hero. The hero is the one who forgives. And so if we know that we're forgiven, if we know that Jesus is the hero of our story, then we can grow in maturity by actually being like, like vulnerable and transparent and realistic about our own spiritual condition, about even our own sin. So like we can confess sin because we know Jesus is the hero of our story. We know we are forgiven. And so we can share our failures with others to teach, to encourage, because hey, I'm not the hero. Jesus is the hero. I'm okay if you don't think I'm great. You and I, we should be okay with one another, like not thinking that, that we're great, because we all point each other to the hero who is Jesus. That we didn't receive justice for our sin, we received forgiveness. That God forgives sin because we need it. And so in our forgiveness of sin, we see that we're not the primary focus here. Jesus is, right? He says it's for his namesake to reorient our lives to where we can grow in maturity because we know who the Father is. We can grow in maturity as sons and daughters in Christ because we know we have God as a Father. What is the result of our sin being forgiven for Jesus' namesake? Well, it says here later in Little Children, it says, Little children, I write you at the end of verse 13 because you know the Father. That the outcome of our forgiveness of sin, the outcome of Jesus being the hero in our place is us being brought in and adopted into this new family where you know your dad, where you know your father in heaven, and where you never stop being a child of God, where you have this identity of son or daughtership, and it's evident, and it manifests in your life that I'm part of this family now. So there's a spiritual and active development as we walk out our new life in Christ. And so, I mean, we just believe that abiding in maturity, growing in maturity is part of discipleship that comes from knowing and being known and loved by God. That we can mature in Christ when we're reminded that we are known and loved by God our Father. Because that gives you security. It gives you stability. It allows you to say, okay, this is, this is a place I can grow. This is a place I can mature. So he's talked a little bit about children. He talks about two other groups of people, young men and fathers. And so let's, let's look at young men here. He says young men can abide in maturity because they have, they have some strength and they have some zeal. Let's talk about that. So young men, so you know, newer believers, those are the small children. This is like, you know, um, these are, there's lots of reason to, to be encouraged. But for the young men, he's saying, hey, okay, you guys, young men, young women, those who've walked in the faith for a while, you're abiding in God's word. You've got some strength. You've got some zeal. You're on mission. But the strength isn't one that just comes because you're, you're young, right? That would be just pride and, and internal. No, it's a strength that says that comes not from themselves, but it comes from God who made them, right? He says, 
I'm writing you young men because the word of God abides in you. So he's saying, hey, you're strong, young men and women, because God's word is in you. That God's word is in you continually. That it's being, it's, it's holding you, it's, it's being held by you, and, and so it dwells and it's being kept in you. So maturity comes from abiding in the word of God. So you're like, well, gosh, I just feel like I'm still kind of infantile in my faith. Why am I not growing? Let me ask you, are you spending time in God's word? Um, we had a pastor in Texas that just said to us often that, that as much as you are in God's word, that is how much your heart will be changed. And it's a simple formula. And it can sound legalistic, but it's like, if you're feeling stuck, have you considered spending time in God's Word? Letting God's Word and prayer and communion with God be what actually becomes your source of strength. Becomes your source of overcoming. See, it says here that in, in um, uh, let's see, in verse 13, right, um, You've overcome the evil one. He says again in verse 14, Young men, you're strong. The word of God abides in you because you've overcome the evil one. And so in this regard, um, there's this abiding, there's this consuming, there's this dwelling in God's word because spiritual maturity, growing in maturity, is recognizing that there are actually spiritual battles that you'll need to face. That there actually is a spiritual conflict going on in the world going on in your relationships, going on in your own heart. So you're saying, hey, you, you're, you've experienced some victory over some sin. And the reason you experience victory over some sin is because God's word abided in you. Because you were changed and transformed and your mind and your heart and your soul were renewed by God. So maybe you, you're a new believer and there's, there's, just, there's areas of your life where you're just like, man, these are big, giant areas of sin that I've got to deal with and wrestle with. Like, that's okay to acknowledge that. And, and to abide in God's word and to repent of sin and, and walk in new life. And, and for some of you and some of us, we've been Christians for a while now. And there's areas of sin that defined and described our life before Christ, that now that we are walking in Christ and walking in our new identity, these same areas of sin no longer describe us. Like, that's okay. Like, savor those victories. Right? You're walking in sexual purity? Praise God. Like you're managing your finances in a way that, that, that is letting you be generous and, and be a good steward and, and walking out of debt. Praise God. Hey, you're like 60% of the jerk you used to be. Praise God for the 40%, right? That's called progressive sanctification. Let's try to get you to 50 sometime soon, right? And by you, I mean me. Okay. Right, but like, like, it's okay to savor those victories. And so John, as a pastor, wants to those, encourage those who've been Christians for a while to say, hey, you've had some wins. Like, there's things that used to enslave you that don't enslave you anymore. And that should, that should help spur on more maturity in you. Praise God for those victories. That you've been forgiven in, by, by Christ for your sin but there's still very real and present 
battles that there's a real enemy that seeks to devour and destroy. And so, like, he's just saying, hey, you're going to have to keep fighting because a passive response is simply not an option. Like, the greatest way to assure your defeat in any arena of life is to not believe there's a conflict. To not believe there's a battle. The surest way to not mature in Christ is to somehow believe there's no spiritual battles or spiritual forces that are opposed to you. Because then you're just, you're not going to fight. Or any opposition you might face uh, or anything that keeps you from endurance, you either fold like a house of cards or you just go the direction that that goes. And it's not going to lead to greater rootedness and settledness and maturity, but, but it's going to lead you away. And so I want to ask you, what battle right now are you losing because you're not even fighting it? What's the area in your life, in your soul, in your spiritual walk that God's saying, I have victory for you in this. I have forgiven you of sin in this area. Your identity as my son or daughter is secure. Now go ahead and fight a little bit. Go ahead and take the field. Go ahead and wage some war against sin, knowing that Christ is already victorious over it. Like, how encouraging is it to take the field knowing you're going to win? Knowing you can experience some victory. But you're never going to experience that victory if you don't believe you're in a battle in the first place. And so I believe John is calling more mature believers to continue to grow by saying it's okay to acknowledge areas of sin in your life and say, I want to grow in these areas. That's the battle. It's for growth, for greater maturity, leads to greater settledness, leads to greater joy. Secure in your identity in Christ. Take the field. Fight the fight. He says, you've overcome the evil one. Like, yeah, we believe that there's a Satan. Okay? We, we, we believe in, in demons and all, all that stuff. We believe that there's evil spiritual forces. We believe they're strong. We believe that they, that they can captivate societies and countries and individuals and all, all sorts of things. But we believe in a God who's bigger. We believe in a Jesus who's victorious over Satan's sin and death. And so that John can say, you've overcome the evil. Like, you can fight. You can go ahead and resist sin because Satan is a defeated enemy. And so there's going to be times where you feel weak and fragile. And that's okay. I feel those times all the time. Weak, fragile, beat up. But we can have great hope that the one who holds us, the one we abide in, is greater than any enemy we can face. So take the field and fight. Okay. Then he talks to the spiritual fathers. Say fathers and mothers if you want to, it's okay. The maturity leads to greater endurance. So now he's talking to some more 
older believers, some more mature believers. I love it. He keeps the sermon short for these guys, right? For the children, it's like, hey, um, you know, you're forgiven for his namesake. You know, the father. For the young men, he says, you know, hey, um, you know, you're strong. The word of God abides in you. You know, overcome the evil. And he gives them a three-point sermon. For the older folks, he just gives them one clear point. You've known him who's from the beginning. Like, it's because the older folks are like, hey, my time is short. If you can wrap this sermon up, i got some more living to do before I'm done. Right? So he just keeps it really simple. He says, hey, like those of you who are mature in Christ, those of you who are spiritual mothers and fathers to others, like you've known him who's from the beginning. You've known the gospel. You've known the truth about who God is who created everything good. You've known the truth about sin, how God's dealt with sin in Jesus Christ. You have great hope, not in this life, but in the life to come, in Jesus' return, where there's a new heavens and new earth. You're feeling your body decaying, but yet you know that a new resurrected body is coming. And so you're longing for that day. You've ran your race. You've fought battles and you have won. You're still here. You're still having faith in Christ. You've known him who's from the beginning. And so you can look back at some seasons of endurance. You can look back and have a deep sense of what Christ has accomplished in your story. He's encouraging these saints because he knows they've run a lot of miles. And he just says, hey, remember what God's done for you. Remember what he did for you in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s. Remember what he's doing in the life of your kids. See what he's doing in the life of your grandkids. See the ways that he's been faithful to you. See all the opportunities that, that you could have fallen and, 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 and been destroyed, and yet he just keeps carrying you and carrying you. And, carry, and he's going he's gonna to carry you all the way to the finish line. And so he's saying you can have a maturity that leads to greater endurance because you've seen God work before. So when you come to times of despair, times of frustration, times of worries, you can, you can be reminded and recall the decades of God's faithfulness to you. That God that saved you as a little spiritual child, that God who helped you fight and win some battles is the same God that's going to endure now and forever. And so there's not resignation that some past vitality is gone, but there's great anticipation of glory. And yet also, there's this great urgency to impart and impact the next generation. That's why it doesn't say spiritual old people. It doesn't say spiritual people who are close to the finish line and no longer have a place in the kingdom. They say spiritual fathers. You're here for a reason to impart the truths of the gospel to the next generation so that they can do likewise because somebody else did it for you. I've been so encouraged in this last uh, couple years because I, I've begun to do um, some work with one of our church um, networks. We're part of Acts 29. We're also part of a, a church network called Church Venture. Uh, and Acts 29, we're, we're a younger network, and so a lot of us are, are in our 40s, which just doesn't sound that young anymore. Um, but what I love about Church Venture is it's an older Baptist network, uh, and with that, there's, there's a couple guys in their mid-60s and early 70s who, who, are, who are still running strong, and what they're doing is investing in those of us uh, in, in our 40s and young 
because they care about the gospel, because they care about the church, and they want to invest in the next generation. And, and like, these guys are guys that could be retired and done and just kind of checking out, and instead, they're just, they're just putting the gas on and saying, let's go, the time is short. And so they're training, and, and they're caring for, for young leaders and developing new leaders. And so, uh, I mean, that's part of the role that those who are more mature in Christ get to have. And so I, I do want to make this point, because uh, I, I think it's important. Chronological maturity does not always equal spiritual maturity. We grow in maturity not by time spent on the earth, but by years and miles walked with Jesus. And so sometimes what that means is that there are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s that are wise beyond their years. They just have great maturity, and that's fantastic. And, and I've also known people in their 70s and 80s who are some of the least mature people I've ever interacted with. None of you in this room, you guys are all great. They're all gone. They left a long time ago. Okay. But like, it, you know, so it's just, it's just wild because, right, it's not just have you served time in the world, but are you... Are you actually walking with Christ? Because conversely, you know, like I said, there can be young people where it's like, hey, this is your time to kind of step up and take ownership. This is your time to take some leadership. This is your time to invest. This is your time to contribute. This is your time to serve. And yet I've been around, you know, like some of the leaders I was talking about and, and others, guys in their 60s and 70s that have, have way more zeal than some people in my generation or younger. So it's about Abiding in Christ, not just time spent in the world. See, if we're, if we're just assuming that somehow engaging and living in the world is what's going to determine our maturity, then we've lost it. Because while John's just kind of broken down, um, you know, uh, little children, young men, uh, and, and spiritual, you know, fathers, um, he, he also wants to say, hey, there's an aspect of maturity, not just in what your identity is in the family, but how do you engage with the world out there? So that's our next verses as we move on here. Verses 15 and 16 says this. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. So he's, he's laid out the identity. Let, you, let them know that you're in the family. And he says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, let me say it this way. Abiding in maturity means loving God and his people more than the world. Abiding in maturity means loving God and his people more than the world. See, we're to love God, love people, love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It says, not love the world or the things of this world. And so what that, that word means, love, because we have to define it, is in this context what he's saying is, we have to have our primary love, affection, devotion, allegiance be to our Father in heaven, not the world below. And so we can hear that, and things can get wonky pretty quick because, you know, we hear as well um, that James 4 says, um, 
that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You cannot love God and the world. And so we're like, whoa, whoa, wait. What about John 3, 16? I thought God said he loved the world, but he sent his only son, Jesus. So when you hear world in the New Testament, and you hear it in the context where it's saying, avoid, abstain, uh, um, you, you know, be wary of, don't have your affection towards it, what it's, what it's not saying is all of creation. It's not saying, like, hey, if you went on a hike over this last week and just enjoyed the beauty of creation, that John is like, well, I told you not to love it too much. Like, like I said, move to Iowa. You won't love it there, right? No, no, like, it's, like God created creation and he made it good. Like it is okay. In fact, it's a good thing to enjoy the good things that God has made in the way that he has intended them. So this isn't some call to disengage from the world, to just like, you know, make a whole uh, compound and, and just say, hey, we're all just going to move in uh, together. Um, a couple weeks ago it was man camp, uh, and it was at the um, old Rajneesh uh, um, cult uh, area. Uh, and, and we had um, our speaker came in, and I was on a hike with him. Um, and he'd never been there before, and he, and he didn't know the history. And he goes, this place is great. It's like, yeah, it is. He goes, gosh, wouldn't it just be great if we could just live here forever? I was like, well, some people tried that. <laughs> And it didn't go as well. <laughs> like, it was a cult, and like, you know, you have to, get, you know, you gotta move on at some point. So like, it's not a call to withdraw from the world. To just fortress up. Hey guys, it's locked the doors, we're just gonna live in here forever, right? Like, no. No, it, it's, like, enjoy, like, don't think if you're not enjoying the good things that God gives you that you're somehow more holy. Gosh, I've been around those people, and they are super not fun at parties. so God's not more happier with you or more pleased if you don't enjoy those things. And what the world is, and so I want to give you a good definition of the world. What the world is in this context is everything that is opposed to God or robs us from having God as our deepest desire. So when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about systems, structures, worldviews, ideas, ways of being, behaviors that are either exclusively secular, meaning humanistic, we can do it on our own without God, or are antagonistic towards God. Either one of those doesn't lead to life, doesn't lead to flourishing. So it's anything that's organized or even unorganized or aligned that seeks to diminish, distract, or destroy our primary overarching allegiance and affection to God who's the creator of everything. Well, now when you think about, gosh, what is this something that takes my affections away from God? Now all of a sudden, that, that list of things could actually be pretty broad. And so, growing in maturity isn't about trying to define what's worldly and bad and what's righteous and good, although, although that's, that's helpful. There are certain things that cannot be redeemed. Okay? No, but instead of just trying to divide up lists, Maturity and abiding in Christ in how we interact with the world requires us to walk in discernment. What is stirring my affections towards God? What is aligning me with his will and purpose? What is keeping me from sin? What is having me walk towards righteousness? What is robbing God of glory? What is, what is robbing 
joy and life, what is destroying relationships, what is decaying my soul, what is separating me from God. So that's why as Christians, like, it's okay for us to have opinions about things like politics and culture. Because there are policies and ways of being that help stir affections for God, that align with God's will. And there are policies and things in culture that erode those things. See, abiding maturity means that we're reminded that God cannot and will not be second to anything or anyone. See, the reason John can say if you love the world, the love of the Father's not in you is because you can't love something lesser when something greater is present. So he's saying if your primary allegiance, your primary affection is to the things of this world, greater than your alignment and affection for the God who made the world, that's not what the love of the Father looks like. And so that's getting really, really excited about the gifts that God has given us when we're called to have our affections to the gift giver. Gifts are great. The way God has gifted this world, the, the way flavors work and colors work and experiences work that, that are pleasurable, enjoyable, I mean, fantastic. What an amazing gift. They are to lead us to love the gift giver better. And so if we just fixate on the gifts, on the things of this world, and forget the giver. That's why, you, that's why, that's why like, you, you know, you go fishing, you're not like, thank you, river, for providing fish. God made the river. Thank you, God, for the river and the fish. Thank you, God, that other people go fishing so I don't have to. Right? I don't like fishing, okay? Right? right, so like, the gift giver is greater than any gift he could give. And so how we get worldliness wrong is we start making all these false distinctions uh, that lead to greater self-righteousness. And so we'll, we'll do things where we come up with a, a list of sins that we don't ever struggle with and say, well, that, that's the world. And then we're like, no, I'm a really, really good person, even though sometimes we're kind of a jerk. And so, again, it's just a call to greater discernment. And the way that John lays this out, we've got to keep moving here, but the way John lays this out in these verses, verse 15 and 16, is he's saying, hey, um, maturity means actually fighting and being aware of the way your affections are going to be drawn away from God. So he does it in three quick ways. Number one, he says, the cravings of the flesh. That's self-indulgence. saying self-indulgence is going to keep you from maturity and flourishing. More affection and desire for even something God has made good um, and perverting it and abusing it in a way that leads to destruction. Also, it can be when you're living for the sole purpose of pleasing yourself. Right? You have no other's focus. Your entire life is focused on you. Self-indulgence. So you have to ask yourself, what are my appetites? Are they healthy? What am I feeding? What's controlling me? Number two, we were drawn away by the desires of the eyes. That's self-deception. So the first one, uh, cr um, craving of the flesh, self-indulgence. This one, self-deception. It's, it's looking at the world through wrong eyes, having false values, that being reminded that most sin doesn't begin with an action. It begins with a heart attitude and disposition. That's why Jesus can say, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder I'm telling you, if you're angry in your heart, you've already committed murder. 
Jesus is always going downstream to the source. Oh, adultery, yeah, don't do that. What it started with was lust in your heart. And so this self-deception that somehow what you think about, um, how you um, uh, how you fixate on things, um, doesn't have some impact on your actual actions in life. And so what's your worldview? What governs you? And then he says pride of life, which is just self-glorification. How do you see yourself? What's your self-image? Is it in your status, your wealth, your education, your your power, your influence? Is it leading you to some place of entitlement? Like, I deserve this much glory. See, sometimes this can happen in the church, too, when it leads to, like, a false humility. Like, well, I'm just more humble and holy than everybody else is, so I'm sick of all those other sinners. See, maturity doesn't seek self-glory because it has the self-assurance of position in Christ. Sometimes we're seeing this like in like a deconstruction movement where it's just like, you know, I have contempt for those that still believe in the Bible. Oh, good job. Like, no, no, it says that maturity and strength comes from abiding in God's word. Maturing in Christ requires us to have maturing desires. And so it's not enough just to say, hey, we've got to avoid the things that keep us from God. You know, we need to replace them with things of this world. Um, rather, we need to replace the things of this world with the love of God. And so here's a few questions you can ask yourself as diagnostic before we get to our last verse and close. We're trying to figure out, you know, where are my desires? What's driving me? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up? Coffee. That's right. Some of you are like, I can use some coffee now. Chris, the sermon's going a little long. Okay. What keeps you up at night? Also coffee. Okay. Um, what keeps you up at night? You're like, what is that anxious thing that keeps you up that you're fixated on? Does what you're engaging with bring God more glory or bring you more glory? Who's the hero of your story? What's drawing you closer to God and his people? What are these desires cultivating or feeding? How do you compare yourself with others? Like those, are, those are helpful questions, and, and you can chew on those, and you can pray on those. Uh, hopefully, they'll, they'll be um, uh, up on the notes tomorrow. I think some of these are in the discipleship guide as well. But I don't want us to just be fixated on who we are now. Because right? remember, if you're in Christ, we're little children, and we are forgiven. That's who we are now. And so the last point of how we can abide in maturity is that abiding in maturity looks to eternity. Abiding in maturity looks to eternity. Last verse as we close. Verse 17. And the world, meaning those things that are opposed to God or rob us uh, of enjoying God, the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's good news. It's okay to be excited about that. Absolutely. Like, like what I love about this is he said, hey, okay, you've got desires. Like, the reason that we've got these desires of the flesh and pride of the eyes and all these things is because we want things, like, right? Like, we, we, we want security. We, we, we want to, to, to have stability. We want assurance. We want relationship. We want connection. That is all well and good. You should want those things. 
Abiding in maturity means we know where those things come from and where they can ultimately be found. And so the idea of walking in faithfulness, growing in maturity, isn't like for self-denial and self-deprecation. No, it's actually like the most pragmatic thing you could do. It's saying, hey, stop investing in what is temporary. Start investing in what's eternal. Like you're going to have an eternity that's more glorious than your present. That, that any act of faithfulness, uh, any season of endurance, um, any way of growth in maturity, it may not be recognized now. There may not be anybody that's patting you on the back now. In fact, you may actually suffer more in this world for being a faithful Christian than you would if you just went with the flow of the world. But what John's saying to these Christians is don't try to abide in the world because it's passing away. It's temporary. He's saying be rooted in, be held continually, abide in the will of God forever. And so it's like, it's a call to invest in things that actually matter. When we meet our Father and He smiles on us, He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Master. That all the investments of this world will ultimately find themselves as a bust. Saying, aim higher. Invest in eternity. And so what that means is no matter what happens in the world, where it looks like the world might be winning or gaining ground, that we know that it doesn't mean God is losing because we know that God is ultimately victorious. This will pass away, that he endures forever. I'll close with this poem um, from C.T. Studd. This is just a section of it. It says this, Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, talking about God, bringing thy, thee pleasures on thy throne, only one life, will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say "Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. We can continue to endure and grow in maturity as we abide and simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. God, you are good for us.